Every summer since 1990, Andrea and I have made our way to Trenton, Ontario, to Prince Edward County, where we have vacationed with our, chil our children over the years. And in those early years, we used to drive all the way into Belleville to go to church. But uh, we now go into Trenton whenever we have opportunity to do so, to worship and attend the Trenton Baptist Church, where John Harrington and his wife Karen serve. And we get to renew our fellowship with them and their three kids, uh, Ada, Jude, and Emery. Trenton Baptist Church is what you would call a turnaround church. 20 years ago, it was struggling to even exist. And uh, a pastor came in there and uh, began to revive the work. And he asked John to come on as an associate pastor with him in the year 2014. And they labored with each other and saw the church grow. In 2018, John became the lead pastor of that church. And that church has a growing witness in the Trenton area. Now, John and Karen are not um, unknown to us because they attended West Highland from the year 2007 to 2013 before John went to become the associate pastor there. Uh, John has proven himself to be an outstanding leader, a faithful pas pastor, one who is true to the teaching of the Word, and he handles the Word of God very well. Would you please welcome John Harrington. God bless you, man. Good morning, West Island. It is wonderful to be back to worship the Lord with you this morning. As Pastor John just mentioned, it's been about nine years since we were members uh, of this church, and we, we loved uh, our time here. We loved the life groups that we were a part of. Uh, we loved serving in youth ministry. Fun fact, Abigail was uh, one of the kids that we were youth leaders of when we served in youth ministry. So it was wonderful to be here this morning as she's commissioned to go on and serve the Lord in that way. Just wonderful. We loved sitting under Pastor John's teaching. We just loved being part of West Highland Church. And so when, when we moved from the Hamilton area, the most difficult part of the move was leaving our church family um, that we had grown to, to just love and appreciate so much. And, but at the same time, we knew we had to go. We knew there was someplace else for us to be. At a New Year's Day worship service in 2012, sitting right around up here somewhere, it looks a little different in here now than it did back in 2012, but in that service, I just... I felt God working in my heart and, and calling me into ministry. I don't know how to put it into words, but I just remember it was that service and I came up to talk to Pastor John right after the service and just share with him what God was doing in my heart. And that spring after that, a couple months later, the opportunity to, to sell our house came about and I thought, okay, tuition money uh, to go back to school. So we sold uh, our house and uh, moved into just a, a place we rented, a lower part of a house. And uh, I didn't make that much money on the sale of the house, so I still had to work four days a week. Um, and so worked four days a week, went to school one day a week, took as many classes as I could at Heritage and uh, took correspondence courses on evenings and weekends. I did that. And then amidst that hectic year, we also welcomed our second child, Judah. And so I, I made it through the school year somehow. Um, but again, that summer, I just, I felt God moving in my heart again. And I knew something was going on. So I took a day to pray and fast. And I 
just was trusting God, you're going you're gonna to reveal to me what it is you, you want us to do. And I was certain God was going to answer our prayer that day, um, but he didn't. Uh, he made me wait one whole more day. Uh, and the next night I came home from work and the people whose house we were now renting the lower half from, they informed us that they were pregnant, they were going to need more space uh, in their home, so if we could kind of find other accommodations in the next few months, that would be great. So we had our answer to prayer that there was somewhere else uh, for us to be. And so we moved to Trenton, and we thought we'd be there for about a year or two, but nine years later, uh, we're still in Trenton. And as Pastor John mentioned, I've been in a pastoral role there for about eight years or, or so now. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And my plans would have been to stay right here at West Highland and continue to serve with you and minister with you and worship with you. But God had other plans for me to serve him in Trenton these past many years. But it's wonderful to be back. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to celebrate this significant milestone in the life of your church with you. And it's a wonderful blessing to have the opportunity to open God's word with you this morning. So when I thought about what passage I wanted to share with you this morning, it didn't take me long to come to Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And this particular passage, it's, it's special to me, and it's special to me in my life of West Highland, because it was a scripture I, I came across and reflected on often in those early days of being felt called into ministry when I was here in Hamilton at West Highland Church. It was a passage I looked to a lot and, and memorized and went through a lot in those early days, like I said, and it's still a passage that I often reflect on, that I often remind myself of as I seek to continue to serve the Lord in ministry. And so I pray it'll be a great challenge to the, to, and encouragement to all of you here this morning as well as you seek to further minister the gospel here in Hamilton. I came, I saw, I conquered. That's a phrase out of history that perhaps some of you are familiar with. Anybody ever hear that one before? I came, I saw, I conquered, yeah? You know, th this popular phrase, it reportedly originated in a letter that Julius Caesar uh, sent, wrote to the Roman Senate in about 46 BC after winning a battle in Asia Minor. And the point of the phrase that he wrote was to refer to a swift, conclusive victory. I came, I saw, I conquered. So now some of you said, yeah, we're familiar with that phrase, and we could be familiar with it for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you're aware of the, the origin of the phrase that I just shared with you. Maybe you've read it in a history textbook as it's been quoted many times throughout history. Maybe you've heard it on TV, maybe even heard it in song lyrics. Any fans of the Christian rock group Petra in here? Petra means rock. In the 1987 album, This Means War, listen to that a lot as a two-year-old. No, just joking. But in that album, they have a song titled, He Came, He Saw, He Conquered. In that track, it's not referring to the, the swift, conclusive victory of Julius Caesar. It's referring to the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and the grave. And the chorus goes, he came, he saw, he conquered death and hell. And so while Petra made a, a tweak to the original phrase for their song about Jesus Christ, I made a tweak to their tweak for our sermon outline this morning. 
And our sermon outline this morning, as we work through Philippians 2, 5 to 11, is this. He came, he died, he conquered. He came, he died, he conquered. So he came, we're going to look at in verses 6 and 7. He died, we're going to look at in verse 8. And he conquered, we're going to look at in verses 9 to 11. But before we head into the passage, before we work through the text, let's commit our time in God's word to him in prayer. Let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, it's so wonderful to be here, to be with this group of saints worshiping you. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that is held within. Father, may the truth of our Savior come alive to us today. As we read this text so focused on him and who he is and what he has done, May our hearts overflow with excitement, with passion, with thanksgiving for who our Savior is. Father, we, on this side of eternity, will never be able to see that full picture of who he is. Not like when we'll see him face to face one day, that beautiful day when we go to him or he returns for us. But Father, help us to see more of who he is, the truth of who he is today. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning as we open your word and as we look at our Savior. Father, if there's any here this morning who don't know Christ as Savior, Father, I pray you would work in their heart by your Holy Spirit. You would bring conviction of sin and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord, the one who is King, the one who is conqueror. Father, we thank you. Lead us and guide us in this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as Paul begins this letter to the Philippians, he expresses his his thankfulness for their care for him and and their support in his ministry. That's how he opens the letter. But uh, as thankful as he is, um, there's still some problems within this community of believers. And in particular, Paul, he's concerned about dissension among some of the members. He even specifically names a couple of them later on in the letter. And he's also concerned about opponents who who preach righteousness, uh, righteousness based on circumcision or observance of the law. And so near the end of chapter 1, Paul urges the Philippians with these words. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in the midst of these things, as as these wrong teachings are being thrown at you, as there's some conflict in the church, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. This is what he's instructing them towards. And he says, so that he will know that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then into chapter 2, Paul continues this theme of unity amongst the believers. And we read this in Philippians 2, 1 to 4. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul gives them these instructions. This is how you need to live amongst one another as believers in Christ. 
And then he makes this statement in verse 5, Paul does, to motivate these Christians to live like their Lord and Savior. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul, he envisions the life of, of the believing community being formed by the mind, or it could also be translated attitude of Christ. Let your community be formed by the mind or attitude of Christ, his example that he has left for us. Paul is speaking in those verses of humility of spirit and loving service to one another rather than competition, rather than everyone grasping for power and control. No, humility, love one another, serve one another. And so as we head into the text this morning, ask yourself this as an individual and, and as a church, does our life ref together reflect the same mind, the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus? Am I, are we looking to the interests of others rather than our own interests? Is humility and unity and servanthood evident among West Highland Church? Paul, he's calling us to, to relinquish our, our grasping for worldly power and embrace the role of a servant. Power struggles and, and, and pining for prestige, those things don't honor the name of Jesus. But following his, his example, identifying with him, the low, identifying with the lowly, giving ourselves to, to humble service to a suffering world, that's how we honor the name that is above every name. And so encouraging his readers towards these things that he, that he said at the beginning of chapter 2 in the first few verses, Encouraging them towards humility and service, Paul, he points to the greatest example there is concerning these things, the example of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we come now to the, the body of the message. He came, he died, he conquered. And so point number one, he came. Let's read verse six together. Philippians two, verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so the first thing, as Paul looks to the example of Christ, that he reminds the believers about him is that he was in the form of God. And Paul, he isn't referring to Christ's outer form, which Christ's outer form did, in fact, change. Jesus was a fetus in the womb. He was then born a baby. He grew into a child. He grew into a, a, a young man, and then he grew into an adult. What Paul is referring to here is the, as he uses this word form in verse 6, is a term that represents the unchanging character or nature of something. Paul is saying that, that Christ exists as to his nature in the unchanging nature of God. He is unalterably God. His essence and his unchangeable being are divine. That's what he means by he was in the form of God. This is why Jesus could claim such things like, I and the Father are one, or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's why the writer of Hebrews opens his epistle describing Jesus this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So he's in the form of God. And the next thing we notice Paul says concerning Christ in verse 6 is that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word equality defines things that are exactly the same size, the same quantity, the same quality, the same number. To put it simply, things that are identical. 
So here, Paul's further stressing that, that Christ's nature is identical to God's nature. That's why elsewhere, Paul writes in, Col in Colossians 1.15, he says of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to see God in all his divine nature? Look to Christ. Do you want to see the perfect image, the exact likeness of God? Look to Christ. And so concerning Christ's equality with God, Paul said that Christ did not regard it a thing to be grasped. The word for grasped here means something prized or, or embraced or clung to. So Jesus, possessing the very nature of God, was in every sense equal with God, refused to cling to that equality. Christ had all the rights, all the privileges, all the honors of God, which were, he was completely worthy of, which could never be taken away from him, but his attitude was not to grasp these things, not to cling and hang on to these things. Thus, Jesus' incarnation, it began with unselfishness. It began with Jesus willingly letting go of the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And then Paul continues this point of unselfishness in verse 7 of Philippians 2. It says, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now this is of, of utmost importance to understand that when Paul says Jesus emptied himself, he does not mean that he emptied himself of his deity. Jesus never said to anyone ever, well, I, I used to be God, but now I've come to earth and now I'm just a man, I'm not God anymore. Jesus never said that. We know this to be certain that Jesus never ceased to be God by a certain event recorded in Matthew 17 and Luke 9, where Jesus, he takes his disciples, a few of them anyway, up to a mountain, and, and he pulled back his, his human flesh, as it were, manifesting the shining, blazing glory of God in the transfiguration. And Peter and James and John, who witnessed this, they fell on their face, traumatized, overcome by what they saw. The glory of God. Jesus was putting his glory on display for them. So he did, yes, take on human flesh. He did become fully man, but he never exchanged his deity for his humanity. He never ceased to be God. We don't understand when it says he emptied himself that that's what it meant. He never did. In saying he emptied himself, Paul's point is that Christ deprived himself of, of deity, didn't deprive himself of his deity, excuse me, but that he did not demand rights, his rights as deity. Remember, we already established that. He was equal with God in every way. He had all the rights that God the Father had. And that's what he emptied himself of. He didn't demand those rights. In John 17, Jesus says that he set aside his heavenly glory to come to this sin-stained world. In John 5, it says he set aside his independent authority and acted according only to the will of the Father. So he set aside those rights to do the will of the Father, to come into this world. And Paul then says not only did Christ willingly give up these rights and these privileges that were absolutely his, but he also took on the form of a servant. Jesus didn't just superficially take on the, the shape of a servant. He didn't just dress like a servant and act like a servant. He became a servant. 
Again, we use the word form here. Paul uses the word form here, which we learned back in verse 6 is a term used to, to indicate the exact essence and nature of something. So Paul is expressing that in taking on the form of a servant that he was the servant of all servants. That Jesus, of all people who ever lived, was the one who had the greatest rights, but willingly gave them up and became the servant of all servants. That the King of Kings and Lord of Lords came to serve his Father and came to serve those who are his Father's children by faith. And so then we ask, well, how? How, how did Jesus take on the form of a servant? How did he serve the Father? How did he serve us? At the end of verse 7, Paul tells us he was born a man. This is more than just becoming a God in human embodied. Just Christ took on all the essential attributes of humanity, identifying with every basic human need and weakness. This is, uh, he, Jesus became human in the fullest, truest sense that you could become a human. We see this vividly in the Gospels. One of the greatest examples of this is, is in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he fasts and then Satan comes and he, and he tempts him and in that moment, in that moment, Jesus is hungry. He is weak because he is man. We're reminded of this truth in Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus understands us, he relates to us, he knows what it is to be weak and hungry and tired and thirsty. He became a man. He took on human form. And so Christ came. Christ came. He gave up the glory of heaven. He lowered himself to, to our level, coming as a servant. And when it looks like Christ couldn't humble himself any further, he, he steps out of heaven gives up his rights and privileges as God, comes and lives amongst us, but doesn't just live amongst us, becomes a servant, the servant of all servants. When it doesn't look like he could humble himself any further, he does. He humbles, humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, as it says in verse eight. And that's our second point, he died. Jesus didn't just come for us, he died for us. In fact, the, the whole reason Jesus came is so he could die for us. Verse 8 of Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So as Paul says, in being found in human form, he, he further advances the point he was making at the end of verse 7. That having become a man, stepping into this world and becoming a man, Jesus was then recognized as a man by those who saw him. That was the judgment of this world, that Jesus was nothing but a man. The fact that the world rejected him, that they rejected his claim to deity, that they thought his claims to deity were blasphemous. Every time he would make a claim or allude to this claim, they would pick up stones to stone him. These things indicate that they saw him as nothing more than a man. And it wasn't that they couldn't see that he was fully God and fully man by his works, by his words, by his character of life. 
It's that they refused to believe it. Jesus was doing things that no ordinary man could do, but they refused to believe it. And so we need to acknowledge, we need to see Christ's humanity, that he is fully God and fully man, but we also need to see his humility. Paul says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself when he came down into this world. He, he humbled himself by being born a baby. He humbled himself by becoming that dependent child. But he still was not humbled as far as he was going to be humbled. He didn't come into this world and say, okay, that's far enough. I come, I've become a dependent baby. I need other people to take care of me. I've given up the glories of heaven. That's it. That's as far as I'm going. It's still a lot of humility. That's all I'm doing. He never said that. Even when they took him into the mock trials, prior to his crucifixion, when the false witnesses came against him, bringing trumped up lies, spitting on him, hitting him in the face. Jesus still never said, okay, that's enough humiliation. I'm not taking any more. I'm not guilty anyway. These are lies. I did no wrong. I'm, that's it. That's enough humiliation. He never said that. Verse eight continues. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Dying was Christ's ultimate act of humility, his ultimate act of service. Christ was saying to the Father, God, you want me to pay the penalty for the sins of those who believe? I will do it. I will humble myself to this point. I will give myself for them. I will serve them. I will give my life for them if that be your will. That was Christ's lowest hour. And it wasn't just obedience to death. Paul finishes verse 8 saying, even death on a cross. The most shocking feature of Christ's humility. Crucifixion was the most painful, the most humiliating, the most cruel form of death imaginable. You know, as the church for 2,000 years, we've, we've embraced the cross. It's a symbol for us that we, that we embrace that we look to, that reminds us of our hope in Christ, what he's done for us. But at this point in Jesus' day, people shuddered at the thought of the cross. The word itself was not even used in polite conversation. The Romans hated those who died on the cross. The Jews considered anyone who died on the cross to be cursed. Jesus' death on the cross was excruciating. His back was torn and slashed from the stripes he took. His head was punctured with the crown of thorns as they beat it into his head. His hands and feet were driven through by nails as they put him on the cross. Every time he wanted to take a breath, he had to push against those nails, tearing through his hands and feet just to get a breath as he hung there on the cross. Crucifixion was the means of execution for the scum of the world. No dignified person was put on a cross. The cross was reserved for the rankest of criminals, the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. 
Crucifixion was the, the ultimate in human degradation. Yet Christ willingly, willingly humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He who knew no sin bore the punishment of sin for us on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He died in our place. Apart from Jesus' death on the cross, there would be no salvation. We were singing that great salvation this morning. Does not exist apart from Jesus giving himself on the cross for us. Apart from Jesus' death on the cross, there is no hope of eternal life. Again, that hope that we were singing about just before we opened God's word doesn't exist if Christ didn't go to the cross for us. Jesus, he, he traveled from the highest place, could get no higher, the heights of heaven, and he came to the lowest place he could come, came and lived amongst us, but lowered himself even further, becoming a servant, giving his life for us in the worst death that you could possibly imagine. That's how low Jesus brought himself. That's how much he humbled himself for our sake. Christ came so he could die, so that we could be reconciled back to God. But praise God, it doesn't end there for Christ. Point number three, he conquered. So what did God do to exalt Christ? Well, the first thing he did is three days later, he rose from the grave. The father brought his body back to life and raised him from the dead. That's the first way he exalted his son. It says in verse 9, Therefore God has highly, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he highly exalted him in raising his son back to life. God raising Jesus from the dead God was affirming the validity of his sacrifice, that it was an acceptable sacrifice. He was well pleased with it. The father in raising Christ from the dead, he was saying what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, the full and final sacrifice for man's sins has been paid. So Christ, he, he conquered death in the grave and he was exalted by the Father, being raised back to life. The second thing that God did to exalt Christ happened 40 days later, when he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 1.3 specifically says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then verse 9 tells us another way the Father highly exalted him. It says he bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So what name did Jesus receive after his resurrection that he didn't have before? It wasn't Jesus. Jesus was the, was the name that the humble servant uh, who went to the cross of Calvary, that was his name when he went, Jesus. But Peter says in Acts 2.36 that I like to refer to as the first church sermon ever preached. Peter says this at Pentecost in Acts 2.36 he says, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was his lordship and his messiahship that was bestowed on him at his exaltation. Not that he wasn't Messiah and Lord before his resurrection, he was. But he had not fulfilled the mission of Messiah until he died for our sins and rose again. 
Therefore, before his death and resurrection, the, the lordship of Christ over the world had not been brought into full actuality yet. The rebel forces had yet to be fully defeated. The power of darkness still held a grip in this world. But to be uh, acclaimed Messiah and the Lord, the Son had to come. He had to defeat the enemy. He had to lead his people out of bondage and triumph over sin and Satan. And Jesus has done this. And he is at the right hand of Father, bestowed with the name of Lord, highly exalted. And it is evident and will be evident that Jesus has done this, that he is conqueror of all when he returns in victory. And we read in verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end of the age, when the mission of the church reaches its glorious conclusion, the name Lord Jesus will be sounded around the world. And at that name, every knee will bow in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believers and unbelievers are going to, in that day, acknowledge that Jesus is conqueror, that he has triumphed over every enemy. Believers are going to do it to their everlasting joy. Unbelievers are going to do it to their everlasting shame. The word confess here means to, to acknowledge something openly. It doesn't mean that at that day everyone's going to be saved. The light's going to click on for everybody and they're going to say, oh yes, yes, Jesus is Lord. I'm repenting and I believe that's not what it's saying. It means that everyone is going to acknowledge Jesus as Lord in that day, yes. But you're either going to bow and confess willingly or you're going to bow and confess forced to as God's enemy. Do it before Christ comes back. Turn from your sin. Trust in him as Lord. Call out to him as Lord. Believe that he did these things for you that Paul tells us about. And you will bow willingly, gladly, joyfully before your Savior. Reject him. You will forcibly bow the knee before him as God's conquered enemy. And as his footstool as it says in Psalm 110. And you will feel God's wrath forever. And then finally, all of this, all that Christ has done brings glory to God. As Paul concludes in verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself and was born in the likeness of men, all for the glory of God. Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, all for God's glory. Jesus Christ is going to return as the conqueror of all creation and with knees bowed and tongues confessing him as so, it will all be for the glory of God. Paul made clear in Philippians 2 verse 5 that Christ is our example. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus or this attitude among yourselves 
If Christ came and he died and he conquered all for the glory of God the Father, then all that we do must be done for the glory of God the Father. That brings us to the focus of your celebration, which I'm told comes from Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, which says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So first I ask, are you established in the faith? Are you established in the faith? That's the starting point. Do you believe the great truths of Jesus Christ found in the scriptures? Do you believe that he is fully God, equal with God in every way? Do you believe that he stepped out of heaven, that he took on the form of a man, that he took on the form of a servant, that he humbly gave up his life on the cross for your sake so that you could be forgiven your sins, so that you could be reconciled back to the Father? Do you believe that? Have you turned from your sin? Are you trusting in Christ as Savior? Are you following him in obedience, awaiting that glorious day when he returns? That's the starting place. If you've never done that, that, there's nothing more important in this world that you could do. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ as Savior. If you've never done so, I would encourage you, there's nothing more important you could do this day. If you feel God working in your heart, if that truth has come alive to you today, tell him that. Tell someone here who you know and trust that. That you want to willingly bow the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Second, are you rooted in Christ? In other words, are you dwelling on your Savior? Are you thinking daily about your Savior? Are you growing in your relationship with him? Are you seeking to follow him and his example? Are you seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? If you want to be rooted in, in who Christ is, your life be rooted in who Christ is, then remember who your Savior is, what he has done for you. Think about the truths of Christ found in the scriptures. Jesus, eternally and equally God, do all the rights that God is due, willingly gave up all of them to come into this world. And not only did he come for us, he died for us. Not just any death, but that excruciating death on the cross. Reflect on these things. Think about these things. Let those things, let the truth of who your Savior is motivate you. Motivate you in your ministry and in your life and in your obedience to him. When you choose that path of humble obedience as Jesus did, no task is going to be beneath you. When you do it out of love for your Savior and out of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ or love for the lost in this community, nothing will be beneath you as you seek to, to humbly serve and love others. In two days' time, two days' time, it's going to be the Christmas season. Apparently, according to all the big box stores and all the advertisements on commercials on TV, it's going to be Christmas. You're going to have the next two months all around you reminding you that your Savior has come, that he's come in humility. Think about that. Two months right there for you to reflect on the humility of your Savior, to motivate you to live humbly for the sake of your Savior. That's awesome. You know, they're doing it for their profit, but do it for your profit and the profit of this church to humbly live for your Savior and love one another. And when humility gets hard, it is hard. It's hard to consider others higher than yourself. 
Remember Jesus' ultimate act of humility, that he came and he gave up his life, the most excruciating death he could give for us. With Jesus as our example, there's no obedience too difficult that God requires of us. And then finally, are you abounding in thanksgiving? Let that truth of Christ, that he is exalted, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's making intercession on your behalf, that he's preparing a place for you into eternity, let that fill your life with thanksgiving. That, let that fill your service and ministry here with thanksgiving. Let the promise that one day Christ is going to return for you fill you with thanksgiving. What an amazing and glorious day that is going to be. I can't wait for that day. When Christ returns, we can't repay him for what he did for us. We can't earn our salvation. But our life can be a thanksgiving offering poured out to him for what he has done for us. But as you do that, as your life is that offering, as you live for him in humility and service, consider what an awful day, what a terrifying day it's going to be for those who have not looked to Christ as Lord and Savior. Let that motivate you in your grace and your love as you share the gospel. Let that motivate you that there's those out there who don't even know how desperately they need to turn to Christ and believe in him. Let that motivate you in your humble service to him. The work of the church, our mission of spreading the gospel, it's not going to be finished until that great and glorious day when Christ returns. But until he does, we're called to have that same attitude as Christ Jesus, to follow his example, step out of our comfort zones, let go of our rights, willingly give them up, humbly serve each other in ministry, humbly serve the lost. 50 years, that's amazing. 50 years of ministry and service and worship to the Lord. As you continue to go forward, until that great day that Christ returns, love each other. Serve each other. Be united in Christ. Continue to do wonderful works for the Lord as West Island Church, all to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John, for sharing your heart and the word with us today. I'm thinking of those verses in Revelation chapter 1 where we read, To him who loves us and has loosed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and our Father forever. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Oh God, speed the day. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.